And good morning, everyone, who are worshiping here in the sanctuary and as well across the street in the chapel and as well online. It's a joy to be back from a little bit of a holiday where I learned that uh, I can sleep in. I'm capable of sleeping in. Such a gift, such a gift to sleep in. I didn't know it could happen. Uh, And now, how timely is this? Submit to the government, and now we actually can because the government is open. And so we're going to take a moment, and we're going to pray together, and then we'll look at this uh, text uh, from Romans chapter 13. Please join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather here within these walls listening for your voice, and our desire, Father, as we pray for the city of Seattle and our state and our nation, is that you would show us what it means to shine as light in the midst of everything. Uh, We know, Father that these are challenging and difficult days. Our prayer, Father, is that we would represent your heart with increasing clarity, and may our time together this morning contribute to that. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I'll begin by talking about something that uh, theologians call the great comma in church history. Creeds were created to define communities and define what communities believe. And uh, within the creeds, there is what is called the great comma. I believe in uh, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and then, watch this, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Theologians who pay attention are like this. What? (laughs) How come we don't address anything between the birth and death of Jesus? What's up with that? Uh, That's a great gap that desperately needs addressing because, yes, Jesus came to die and rise from the dead, but he didn't just come to die, he came to live and in his living to show us what our calling ought to be. And our calling ought to be people of, uh, with a profound commitment toward reconciliation, threefold reconciliation. Reconciliation between each person and God, reconciliation internally so that we are reconciled with ourselves and reconciliation with others, our family, our friends, our faith community, and our enemies. And Romans is all about that reconciliation message. So Romans really fills in the great comma. In Romans chapters 1 through 11, we learn about reconciliation with God so that we needn't be people of shame. In Romans chapter 12, we learn what it means to be reconciled internally so that we can live our lives in a way that's aligned with the life that God had in mind when you were born. And now from chapters 13 through the end of the book, Paul is talking to us about uh, reconciliation with one another. How are we reconciled with the government? That's this morning. How are we reconciled with uh, enemies? How are we reconciled internally within the faith community when we don't agree on matters? And how are are we reconciled with with the larger uh, family of humanity? So this morning, we're looking in particular at our relationship with the government, the believer's relationship with the government. And this is a very important topic, so let me give you a little historical uh, framework here. John Stott, a theologian, identified four main models of relationship that the church has with the state. Aristinianism is uh, this notion that the state controls the church. And so if you look back and you see like Henry VIII in England uh, and, and this kind of mandate, you will believe, that runs throughout history as a thread. And that's often the reason that people migrate Uh, and and leave a a place because they want the freedom to worship in their own way. It's why people came to America between the 17th and 19th centuries. It was often for for religious freedom. Another way of uh, framing this conversation is what's called a theocracy, which means the church controls the state. The church tells the state what to do. 
Uh, and, and at times, this has been the desire of both the political left and political right here in America. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Constantinianism goes back to the, the, the Emperor Constantine, and this is a kind of a compromise between the church and the state, where uh, the church makes accommodations to the state if the state kind of lives in peace with the church. Partnership is the church and state recognizing each other. I'd add a fifth that Stott didn't mention, which is antagonism. And throughout history, there have been moments, at least, when the relationship between the church and the state was profoundly antagonistic, including the moment in which Paul is writing this, right? In other words, the, the, the Roman Empire was threatened by the church. Uh, and where, often where you see totalitarian regimes, this is what you see. The church in China is a relationship of antagonism. The confessing church in Germany under the days of Hitler, uh, led by Bonhoeffer, that was a relationship of antagonism. Eastern Europe, for many decades, relationship of antagonism, Right? And, and, and so uh, what we're going to look at this morning is this relationship between the church and the state. What does God have to say about it so that we can live into our calling uh, properly? And God speaks to us really at, at kind of three different levels this morning. First as citizens, second as uh, the, the, what is the role of the government, and some of you work for the government, so what is your role? Citizens, government, and the church. So those are the three things that we want to look at together. And so we're going to begin here with the role of the citizen. Number one, what's the role of the citizen? And it's very clear in the text. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he just spells it out, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Done. Now, it's a little more complex than that, so let's keep talking, right? Uh, number This verse... It goes all the way back to Genesis 9, submit to the authority of civil government. And it's interesting, uh, uh, given uh, the context, that Paul would say this. Because Nero was serving as the leader of the Roman Empire, and Nero hated Christians. And we're at the very front end of a persecution breaking out against Christians. Eventually, Christians were used literally as torches. They were burnt on stakes at parties that Nero would host. And in addition, the government was filled with bribery, corruption, and injustice so that the government under Nero is actually far more corrupt, far more oppressive than anything any of us have ever seen in the United States. And yet Paul is saying here, submit to government authorities. That's amazing. So what's up with that? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, submit because God created the authorities. Uh, verse 1 here uh, takes us all the way back to Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, God invents, if I can say it that way, government, because prior to Noah, there was this period when there was no government. So you had these early, early families in Genesis 3 in the fall of uh, humanity, and by Genesis 6, everyone's just kind of doing whatever they want, and as a result of everyone doing what they want without any checks and balances, uh, what we find is God looks at humanity and says, the thought and intent of, hu of humankind is only evil continually, and evil was multiplying all over the earth. So, like, it was chaos without some governing authorities, so that there's a flood, and then post-flood, God says in Genesis chapter 9, look, if you kill somebody, then... I'm instituting authorities who will take your life. Now, we're not here this morning to discuss capital punishment, but the point of that text is to say there will be in place from now until the end of time governing authorities 
to curb evil. That's why governing authorities exist. It's one of the main reasons God creates authority uh, to curb evil, as, as we'll see in a moment. So God is trying to show us here uh, that uh, without consequences, evil will flourish unrestrained. All of us in the room want to live in a world without evil, and yet all of us in the room also know <clears throat> that unless there's a government in place, if, unless there's consequences, evil will flourish. So, the existence of government is to kind of prevent evil from flourishing, and that makes the existence of government actually a good thing. Now, let me just illustrate this for you for just a minute here. Uh, how many of you have ever uh, driven faster than the speed limit in the room? Anybody in the room done that? I mean, I can't believe all your hands don't go up. That means some of you are liars. I'm sure, because I think everyone, I, at various times, for whatever reason, you may have been able to justify in some way, but all of us speed at times, right? So we do, and so we break the law. Now, here's the deal. Not only do we break the law, but here's my second question. How many of you, when you're in the midst of breaking the law, and you see an authority, <laughs> magically your brake lights begin to flash because you slow down? Has this ever happened? Anybody in the room? You're driving along. I mean, I live on I-90, 50 miles east of here, so I'm as guilty as anyone of this. Just coming down yesterday, I'm cruising along at like 72 in a 70, and I come around a corner, and here's a patrolman parked, who I hope is not in the room, <laughs> um, parked, and I know he's got his speed gun, and immediately, it's just instinctive, right? You hit the brakes. You, hit, you see the authority, you hit the brakes. Well, it's a beautiful illustration. Authorities are intended for us to hit the brakes, not just with respect to speeding, but in you know, virtually every area of life, we're called to obey the laws, and, and that's why the government exists. And it's more than that. The consequences of, like if you break the law and you get caught, it's redemptive, often. In fact, God's intent, though this is beyond the scope of this sermon, God's intent is that justice be restorative, not re retributive. In other words, God's intent is that justice w would have the effect of changing your life for the, for, for the better. That's what, God, that's what God's about, is restorative justice. So um, an example of restorative justice in my world would be a couple years ago, I meet my son at a particular ski area just a mile from my house. He has a truck. I, have, I drive a little Yaris, a little tiny car. Uh, uh, and so we, we both get there. He'd come earlier because he was skiing farther than me. But we meet, and then we meet up on the slope, and we ski a, a bit. Uh, it's early in the morning. And then when we're done, I throw my skis in his car, and we're going to drive back to my house, which is a mile away. And so it's a mile away, and I think, what need have I of a, of a seatbelt one mile away? I mean, this is not a, this is, who cares, right? I'm going 30 miles an hour. What could possibly go wrong? Well, things can go wrong. You can run into it. There can be a patrolman uh, getting coffee at Snoqualmie Pass who sees you without a seatbelt on. And so, I'm, you know, I'm driving, and I see him, and I try and put it on, actually, <laughs> as well, but he caught me. He flashes lights, you know, pulls over, and then he says to me, what's up? I said, well, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have it on because I'm really only just driving home. It was just a mile. I was out skiing. Well, my skis are not in the car, right? <laughs> and he says, oh, you were out skiing. Where are your skis? And I go, well, you're not going to believe this, but 
I, you know, I gave my skis to my son because we met there. He goes, you're right, I don't believe it. And then he writes me, <laughs> he writes me a ticket and uh, I was driving in my ski boots too, but I didn't tell him that because I don't think it's illegal, but it might be. <laughs> Whatever. Here's the point. No longer ever do I not wear my seatbelt. If it's 50 feet, because that's 115 bucks. I don't know if you know that or not. 115 bucks. And I go, wow, I didn't have my license either, but that's a different story. <laughs> Only a mile, what could happen? So the consequence could be redemptive and not just in lightweight stuff like that. I mean, I know people whose lives were completely transformed because finally they were caught in, in dealing drugs or in some kind of criminal behavior and they spent time in prison and it was there at the very bottom at the very bottom of their lives, that they were open finally to the redemptive power of the gospel and they turn to Christ and their lives are completely transformed. So all this is wrapped up in this thing. Government's there for a reason. It, it, God created the authorities to, to kind of curb evil. So what does the text say? Uh, pay your taxes and obey the laws. Now, as I've already said, this would be a radical thing to say at the time of this writing because of the injustice of the situation. It makes our arguments about Obama and Trump and left and right seem so petty when you consider the corruption and oppression and abuse of the Roman Empire powers, right? And Paul is saying, obey the laws and be good citizens in that corrupt environment. But wait, uh, do we obey all laws? No. There's a caveat. We're not invited to mindlessly submit to all laws. To the contrary, Paul says again in this text, he says, look, verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. If you owe respect, pay respect. If you owe honor, pay honor. Uh, Jesus said it this way, Matthew 22, 21, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God, render unto God the things that are God's. In other words, there are, there are times to say no to Caesar. Say yes to Caesar's taxes, they serve the common good. Say no to the worship of Caesar. Say no to any demand for total obedience because our highest loyalty is not to our nation, not to our president, not to our king, not to our authority. Our highest loyalty is to God. And this has come up literally thousands of times throughout church history where the state has sought to be uh, uh, in the place of God and displace the authority and honor due to God alone. Uh, the Stuart kings in Great Britain uh, created kind of a doctrine called the divine right of kings. And in Latin, the, the phrase then that defined this was rex lex. The king, rex, is law, lex. The king is law. So when the king speaks, the king, what the king says is the final authority. There's nothing higher. A pastor at the time, Samuel Rutherford, wrote uh, like a dissenting contrarian response, the title of which was Lex Rex, whereby he says, oh no, the king is not law. Law is king. In other words, God's law is higher than the law of any king. And if the king's law aligns with God's law, obey the law. So if the king says, wear your seatbelt, wear your seatbelt. There's nothing in the Bible about 
not wearing seatbelts. But if the king says, you'll worship me, Caesar is Lord, was a thing in the first century. No, Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. There's a higher authority, do you see? This was what was behind Bonhoeffer's refusal to obey Adolf Hitler. He said, you know what, there's, a, there's actually a higher law, and so though you are trying to co-opt the church into uh, worshiping kind of the idols of nationalism and the idols of Arianism, I'm saying, in Jesus' name, no. We, as God's people, will not worship that way. We won't, and you can arrest us, and they did. You can execute us, and they did. But we have a higher authority than the state. La Chambon, uh, this village in France that my wife and I visited last year, was a place that sheltered Jews during uh, the war. And they baptized Jews and turned them into Gentiles for season, and they forged documents. And, and uh, when a German official came to the village, literally the high school students, the teenagers, uh, they read a document to this German official and they said, we know what's going on in Paris. We know that you're taking Jews away. We know they're disappearing. We know families are being separated. And we know this. In God's name, we know this is wrong. And so we want you to know there are Jews in this village and you will never find them because we are united in our commitment that every person is made in the image of God and worthy of the protection of life. And so they're totally disobeying the law, totally, in the name of a higher power, right? So this is a big deal because what Paul does here in uh, Romans 13 is he articulates the principle, right? Obey to the extent that you can, always recognize there's a higher authority. He articulates the principle, but then he leaves it to every generation and every context to figure it out. And, and we don't get it right, always. So Southern Baptists thought they were obeying God by resisting the government's mandate to end slavery. Uh, a baker thinks he's obeying God by refusing to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. A business owner thinks he's obeying God when he closes business on Sunday. A voter thinks he's obeying God when he votes for someone who will appoint Supreme Court justices to protect life in the womb, another voter thinks he's obeying God by voting for someone who will work to address the cost of university and healthcare and maybe keep assault rifles and ammunition out of the hands of people. Martin Luther King invokes civil disobedience for voting rights. There's a, there's a principle here. Obey God until you, excuse me, obey the government until you can't. There's a higher authority, right? And we, kind of ask that, we have to ask the question, well, how do we know when to disobey? Listen, this is our work together as a church. This is ethics. This is what it means to be a community. We are called to wrestle in each generation with ethical issues so that we know where the limits of civil obedience are and where the limits of civil, civil disobedience become a very important thing. And this is called the work of ethics. It's a very big deal in the church. It covers money, race, sexuality, life in the womb, economics, violence, environmental degradation, income disparity, homelessness, a million other things. And we need to address these things and should address these things. It's part of the work of the church, wrestling with these, uh, wrestling with these things together. And then, here's the deal, we won't even always agree on these things. So what do we do when we don't agree? Come back in two weeks and I'll tell you. Because that's, that's a huge deal, even bigger than this, right? So 
Your ultimate loyalty is to God. But first principle, the role of citizen, submit to the authorities. As much as you can, submit to the authorities. So often, there are many times when, when the desire of the authorities is aligned with our desires. And when that's the case, it's very easy to work with the authorities uh, to make the world a better place. And that brings us to the second role, the role of the government. First role, role of the church. Second role, role of the government. What's the government here for? It's a couple things. It's here to punish wrongdoing and work for the good. So let's look at both of these things. First of all, verse four, here to punish wrongdoing. It says in verse four, the government is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. The sword is really a, a metaphor here for authority to punish in various ways, right? So here's the thing. Everybody, except for anarchists, believe that there can be no civil order unless there's a state in place to punish wrongdoing. Like we all believe that it's important to have people who punish wrongdoing. So that murder, theft, lying, fraud, human trafficking, kidnapping, all, all of which are seen as universally destructive, don't go unchecked. That's why the government exists. Because without it, there's a downward spiral of chaos. And if you don't believe me, uh, just look at the recent closing of the national parks, right? Nobody, like when we gather, we all love our parks. We all think, you know, this is really a gift. We have national parks. It really is a gift. I spoke over New Year's in a national park. So I was down in California, and to get to this camp where I spoke, you had to drive through Kings Canyon National Park. So normally, you stop at the gate, you know, and you, you pay your fee, and you go in, and whatever. Anyway, so we drive through. The government's closed, and there's just a sign. Closed. But there's no barrier. Like, kind of, you're on your own, Right? So this, the government's been closed like two days or something like that, or whatever it was, I don't know. So we go in and, you know, we park and we go see these gigantic trees and all this stuff. And then we go to camp for three or four days. And when we come out, uh, it's totally different. We, by the time we come out, the government's been closed now nearly a week, I guess. And it is, it's anarchy. It's anarchy in, in this national park, right? There's... there's uh, Trash cans overflowing. There's people, um, like there's now barriers saying, don't go to these trees because people are carving their initials in them and stuff like that. And there's people parking illegally and going to those trees. And, and people are, you know, relieving themselves on the side of the road because the bathrooms are closed. I mean, it's ridiculous. You think, man, really? Is this how we live? Well, have you read Lord of the Flies, right? Have you read Animal House or Animal Farm or whatever that thing is? Like, do <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Like, without governing authorities, it's chaos, man. So by the time we get to the gate, the one or two rangers, whoever, who was in this gigantic national park, they'd closed it completely. They weren't letting anybody in anymore. So there's a line, like a mile long of cars, and we watch this. They just all are coming up. They're being told it's closed. They make a U-turn and they leave. Because we don't, like, without authorities, you people behave like animals. So get out of here. You know, we have to save our park. Well, that's the thing. <clears throat> the government exists to prevent that downward spiral of chaos. That's, that's why it exists. A, to punish wrongdoing. So, 
you know, if you're there in the national park and it's open, people don't cut down Joshua trees, as happened. People don't relieve themselves on the side of the road, as happened. People don't carve their initials in 3,000-year-old sequoias. Tom was here. Are you kidding me? Who does that? We do, humans, right? So the government is there for that. But also, it says in this text, uh, the government is a minister of God to you for good. So then we, we ask the question, well, what is the good? And there's a kind of a theological debate here. <clears throat> Some think that the good is merely the absence of chaos. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, now there's order. And people are afraid to kill other people because there'll be a consequence. They're afraid to steal because there'll be a consequence. Uh, and so now we can all live peaceably. That's the good. That's one view. Uh, there's a problem with this view. The grammar in uh, verse 4 indicates uh, uh, by the word uh, but in verse 4 rather than and that the good is a different thing than just the absence of evil. So uh, verse 4 contrasts two elements with but, which indicates we got two different concepts. So in this model, the good is likely defined much more broadly than just the absence of anarchy. Does that make sense? It's not just that people aren't killing each other. It's that the government is actively uh, bringing good into place. And the reason many of us favor that view is because that's God's character. God cares for the common good. God always has cared for the common good. When God makes a Sabbath law in Exodus 19, it's not just for Israel. It's for Israel. It's for immigrants. It's for foreigners. It's for visitors. It's for your animals. God cares for the common good. In Jeremiah 29, when Israel is hauled off to Babylon and they're in captivity, God doesn't say, hey, just live amongst yourselves and do your thing. God says, work for the well-being and blessing of the city where I placed you because in its well-being is your well-being. So work, watch this, work for the common good. That's why uh, many of us think that the good here is not just the absence of evil. The good is good. <laughs> Libraries, parks, good things, right? And then over here, if you have that view, there are political debates regarding how long this list should be. Do you understand? Libraries, check. Parks, check. Healthcare, nope. You're a communist. And then we go back over here. <laughs> but there's a debate. I hope you understand that there's a debate. And it's a legitimate debate. And it's fine to have the debate. But the debate is part of this larger debate. Pure libertarianism says we want the government as small as possible because we believe that all the good is is the absence of evil. And, and, and pure socialism over here, if I could say it that way, though it's not technically accurate, pure socialism says, no, the good is all this good stuff, and the government, when the government does this, we all live better lives. Legitimate debate. But the point would be, this is where we live, and our calling in the midst of that as God's people is to work for the common good. Jeremiah chapter 29. So um, that's why God is actively for widows and orphans and immigrants. God does this because God cares for the flourishing of everyone. So when we as a church gather and seek to be the presence of Christ, our calling is to embody that commitment to the common good. As we see when we come to the third thing here, which is this, what's the role of the church? So in a democracy like ours, by our vote, we get to choose limited government, expansive government. We get to choose 
But here it is, very important. Though we get to choose, we don't hop in bed with either of these. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because neither of these are the kingdom of God. And so we're not libertarian, and we're not, we're, we're not far right, we're not far left. We're kingdom, which is neither this nor that. It's very important that we understand that. Paul tells us our citizenship is in heaven. And the core message of the gospel, and what makes the good news good news, is that God's reign offers a path for human flourishing, and that path for human flourishing will never, ever be fully embodied by any government authority, ever. The pathway to human flourishing is intended by God to be embodied in the church, which is the presence of Christ. So if Christ is here, you know, blessing, serving, remember Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4? I've come to set the captive free and, you know, sight for the blind and hearing for the deaf and, and uh, freedom and the favorable year of the Lord and all that good stuff, death's forgiven. If that's Jesus' ministry, that's our ministry. And so then when we embody that, we embody that no matter who's in power. That's the thing to see. Doesn't matter who's in power. We embody that. And when we embody that, there are times when we can align with the left and times when we can align with the right. And there are times when the left will be offended by us and times when the right will be offended by us. But we can align or be offended and it's not the point. We don't align to be popular. We don't become contrarian in order to be unpopular. We only do it because it's the right thing. And sometimes it's popular and sometimes it's unpopular, but it doesn't matter, right? So we, can, we align with our friends who run a school across the street and, and we, we work in school partnerships in various places in the city. It's the right thing to do. We align on uh, immigration resettlement. We align on racial reconciliation uh, because our desire is to break down dividing walls that are really a historical problem in this city. So tomorrow night we have a thing here right in this building, an author, Daniel Hill, his book, White Awake, about <clears throat> how we who are people not of color can better understand and live into kind of this active role as a reconciling element in our city. That's our calling. And so we, we do that. And, and, and we serve <clears throat> at, at, at this camp for people uh, with uh, challenges, right? With physical challenges. So that we can be the presence of Christ. This is what we do. And sometimes it's popular with this group and sometimes it's popular with that group. Sometimes it's unpopular. Doesn't matter. We do it. That, that's the church. And so the left has often, you know, thought, the theological left has often thought that the political left is the answer. It's not the answer. The, the, the theological right has often thought that the political right is the answer. It's not the answer. We, like our calling is uh, something that both aligns with and critiques everything because we're the Prince of Christ. And then hopefully that frees us from worrying about being trendy. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, oh, what's the issue of the day? And we gotta jump on that bandwagon. We don't have to jump on any bandwagons. Those of you who, uh, this is not your first time, You'll know, you know me and you know well enough to know my fashion sense. I mean, it's brilliant in my opinion, <laughs> right? Uh, what I do is I, this is my secret, I'll just let you in on this. I wear what I like, that's it. I wear what I like. <laughs> 
And sometimes people come up to me and they go, you know, that sweater looks like uh, something from a sitcom in the 80s. Can you lose that by next Sunday, please? You know? And other times people come up to me and they go, man, that is awesome. Where'd you get that? You're cutting edge. That's amazing. <laughs> and I go, I'm not trying to be cutting edge and I'm not trying to be offensive. I just wear what I like. It becomes a metaphor, really, of our call as a church. Look, when you do something that is pro-life, it's offensive to people on the left. When you do something that's pro-immigrant, it can be offensive to people on the right. Whatever. We follow Christ. Do you understand? And when we follow Christ, that's, we're doing the right thing. And that becomes then the role of the church. We're embodying the kingdom of God. And I'm here to tell you the good news this morning is this. Our calling to embody the kingdom of God is available to us no matter who's in power. No matter who's in power. I've seen the kingdom of God embodied in India in the midst of a corrupt regime. I've seen the, 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 the kingdom of God embodied in Nepal in the midst of the, the open persecution of Christians. I've seen the kingdom of God embodied in Central America in the midst of poverty, in Rwanda in the midst of genocide. Over and over again, go anywhere in the world and this is what you find. When the church is shining as light, they're not kind of listening to what the trends are and trying to align with the trends so they can be popular. They're not doing that. They're listening for one voice, Christ. Because our calling is to be the presence of Christ and shine as light. And the only way we do that is we say what the first century church said, which is this, Jesus is Lord. Huh. And that means we repent from our addiction to viewing politics as the solution. It's not. Never was. And instead we seek together to embody the reign of God in our lives, in our families, in our churches, so that we can serve our city and our world and reframe the notion of what it means to be a Christian. That's our calling. Karl Barth said it this way. He was a theologian uh, writing at the time that Nazism was on the rise in, in Germany. This is so important. Listen to what he says. The flames of political zealotry must be starved by taking eternal significance off the table when we engage in politics. Let me just remind you that little phrase. Taking eternal significance off the table when we engage in politics. I said it here in 2008 and in 2016. Your newly elected president is not the Messiah, so get over yourself, and is not the Antichrist, so quit wringing your hands. I said it in eight, I said it in 16, I'll say it again. Why? Because whoever's in power doesn't change our calling. We're free, free to be the presence of Christ in any setting. A couple years ago, I spoke at a, a, a conference for Christian camps on the East Coast. And um, so it was so interesting. It was right, like days after the inauguration. And so I'm up in Maryland, right by DC. And uh, I sat the first night with a group from a, I'd call it a liberal church camp, liberal, denominationally liberal and politically liberal. And they were like, you'd thought someone had died. I mean, it was like, the nation's over. It's done. It's hopeless because of who's now elected. And then I sat with uh, some fur further right folks, <laughs> a red camp, if I could say it that way. And um, they were like this, finally, finally. Now we've got what we've been waiting for for so long. It's going to be amazing. And I got so tired of hearing like the, mo the mourning and the, and the rejoicing. And there was this group of people sitting at a table that looked like no one else, 
all the women had head coverings and were wearing dresses, and the men all had long beards, and I was like, I wonder who they, those people are. And so I sat with, sorry, on Wednesday, I sat with them, and I sat with them the rest of the week, and they were Mennonites, and I said to them, hey, I've been eating with you for a while now, and I, like, I don't know anything about your politics. Everybody else is, you know, doing this or doing this, you know, and you guys are just here. What's up? And they go, oh, whatever. We don't care who's in power. It's fine. It's all good. They said, here, this, listen, here's what we do. This is this little camp of Mennonites, right? Who, by the way, they're living on a shoestring. All of them. This is what we do. Uh, there's kids in inner city New York. And we bring them out here and we take them through a ropes course. We introduce them to Jesus and we disciple them. Oh, and we do the same thing with addicts. They come out and they do our ropes course, we disciple them. We're going to keep doing that no matter who's in power. Because the kingdom of God is not America. The kingdom of God is not Republican. The kingdom of God is not Democrat. The kingdom of God, hear me, is the presence of Christ. So let's repent of thinking that the kingdom of God is some political thing and instead say to Jesus, Jesus, you are Lord and may you so fill this community that we shine as light and look like Jesus no matter who's in power. Isn't that liberating? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, uh, teach us to be your presence. Regardless, things, nations rise and fall. Your calling remains the same, to be the presence of hope in a hopeless world. Would you equip us toward that end in the days ahead? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together.